We're going to pick up again in our study of the life of Moses, and you should find an outline in the bulletin, and there are printed messages um, at both exits. You can pick one up now or later, and <clears throat> I want to read Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, this is God's inspired word for us. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people a little more, and they will stone me? Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, And take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff, your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa. And Meribah, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other, And thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is My Banner. And he said, the Lord is sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. A standing joke among pastors when we get together is, you know, the ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. But of course, ministry is people, and uh, since all people are fallen sinners, and since even the saints are not perfectly sanctified, uh, if you've got people, you've got problems. And of course, in addition 
Satan is opposed to Christ's church, so we can expect problems both from within and problems from without. In Exodus chapter 17, Moses has to deal with problems from both fronts. From within the camp, the people quarreled with him because there was no water and their anger was so severe that Moses was concerned that they were going to stone him. Uh, As if the internal problems were not enough, Amalek came from without and fought with Israel. In other words, uh, you might title this chapter, Welcome to the Ministry, Moses. And it teaches us that God's people and God's leaders should drink from Christ to deal with problems from within and problems from without. And I'll explain that phrase drink from Christ, where I get that, as we proceed. Uh, The chapter falls into two halves. Um, Verses 1 through 7 deal with the problems from within. Verses 8 through 16 with the problems from without. So from within, we learn that God's people and God's leaders should drink from Christ to deal with problems from within. Now, the grumbling here in chapter uh, 17 of Exodus is very similar to another situation that happens in Numbers chapter 20, so much so that critics of the Bible, scholars who, are, who don't believe the Bible is inspired by God, say they're the same incident, just reported differently. But it's very clear there's enough differences to show they are not the same incident. In both incidents, the people grumble about no water, and the place gets named Meribah, which means quarrel, in both places. In both places, God gives water from the rock through Moses and his action. But Exodus 17 clearly occurs near the beginning of the 40 years in the wilderness, whereas Numbers 20 is toward the end of that 40 years. Uh, Another major difference is that in Exodus 17, the Lord commands Moses to strike the rock. Moses obeys and water gushes out. In Numbers chapter 20, God commands Moses to speak to the rock. But Moses is so angry with the people that in his anger he strikes the rock. And God graciously gave water. But because Moses disobeyed, God said, you will not lead my people into the promised land. Four lessons here, I think, for Israel and, I mean, for God's people and for God's leaders. The first one is, again, very obvious that God's people should be on guard against an evil, unbelieving heart that grumbles against God's dealings with them. And if this problem of grumbling sounds vaguely familiar, it's because we encountered it in Exodus 14, Exodus 15, Exodus 16, and now again in Exodus 17, and it's not the last time we will encounter the problem. If you ask, well, why does the Bible repeat this problem so often? I think the simple answer is because we are so prone to fall into this uh, sin of grumbling. Uh, And I am... First in line, when it comes to that, I confess. So if it convicts you, uh, it convicted me all week before you. So 
It's that kind of a problem. And it's not a minor problem, a minor sin that we should just shrug off. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says that some of them were destroyed by the destroyer because of their grumbling. And then Paul, in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10, adds, Now these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction Uh, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The first thing we need to understand when we come to this chapter is that the Lord directly led Israel to this place of no water. Rephidim, it is called, maybe ironically, resting place. And uh, it says in verse 1, they journeyed according to the command of the Lord. And so you have to stop and ask yourself, now, why would the Lord directly command them to go to this place where he knew there was no water? Uh, They were not lost here. They were following the Lord. And I believe the answer is he does that for the same reason he leads you and me into places of difficulty, places of trial, and that is so that we will call upon him in our weakness And he will be glorified when he uh, meets our need or delivers us. That's exactly what Psalm chapter 50 and verse 15 says. The Lord is speaking. He says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. And so the point of our trials is that God would get glory. And if you're here this morning and you're in a place where there's no water... You're in a difficulty in your life where you're going, what is going on? I thought I followed the Lord, and now I am in this extreme trial. Maybe it's life and death, as no water would be. Um, Before you do anything else, my counsel is stop and call upon the Lord. Seek the Lord as you've never sought Him before. And when the Lord answers, then you can glorify Him through the trial you're in. Now, this incident of Israel's grumbling at Massa, which means test, and Meribah, which, as I said, means quarrel, is mentioned in two other places in the Bible specifically, at length. Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, uh, say this. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa, In the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, there are people who err in their heart. That's an important phrase. It's in their heart. And they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, they Truly, they shall not enter my rest. Hebrews chapter 3 cites that, those verses, and then adds in verse 12 of Hebrews 3, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And so the, the key thing to understand is grumbling is a heart matter. 
It begins with an evil, unbelieving heart. And as our text says, and as that psalm says, unbelief tests or tries the Lord. Um, unbelief, in spite of the many mercies that God has given, unbelief challenges God, as Israel does in verse 7, saying, is the Lord among us or not? In other words, um, unbelief is saying, well, if God is here, and if God really cares about me, then how can he let this happen to me? And so unbelief is doubting God's sovereignty, that he is over the events in my life. It's doubting his power. If he is here, well, why doesn't he do something? Is he not able? It, it doubts his wisdom. How could he, if he's wise, let me get into this place of no water? Uh, it doubts his love. If God really cares about me, then why in the world did he lead me into a spot where I'm going to thirst to death? Uh, and so it removes God from his rightful place as our judge. And it puts me on the judgment seat saying, all right, God, prove yourself. Show me how you're sovereign. Show me how you're powerful. Show me how you're loving because I am now your judge and you must prove yourself to me. It's a total reversal of roles. And it stems from the pride of assuming I know much better than God what's good for me. And if he would only let me be in charge, I could get this whole situation worked out very smoothly. Thank you. So it's an incredibly um, bad, bad sin. So be on guard against grumbling against the Lord. A second lesson here then is that God's people should be on guard against grumbling against God's leaders. And often, grumbling against the Lord comes out sideways as grumbling against the spiritual leaders who, to the best of their ability, are trying to direct you into a place where your life will be blessed. Um, you have Moses here, and I would say if you would rank the leaders in world history, Moses would be in the upper echelons. I mean, there just aren't many leaders greater than Moses. Paul would be up there in the ranks, maybe Peter, David, a few others, but Moses is up there in the upper echelons. And yet, the grumblers are accusing him of bringing them out into this wilderness with their children to kill them, when actually Moses, in obedience to the Lord, was trying to lead them into a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of abundance. You know, you go down through history, as I said, and Moses is up there. The rest of Christian leaders, and you could name the greatest leaders in the history of the church, don't even rank close. And yet, Hebrews thirteen seventeen exhorts the church in this way. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. In another place, Paul commands Titus, who was a young pastor sent out under Paul's authority. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority let no one disregard you. 
And then he instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And scholars agree that double honor there refers both to the respect they should get and also to financial uh, remuneration or support for their labor. But the point is you can't be in submission to a leader or honor a leader if at the same time you're grumbling about him to others. And what happens often is people don't like God's message and so they take it out on God's messenger. And I've often said, I'm kind of like the weatherman. I, I try to tell you what the Word of God says, but I'm just in the middle reporting to you. And sometimes people get mad at weathermen saying, oh, it's going to rain tomorrow. Rah, rah, rah. And they're mad at the weatherman as if he could cause the rain to stop. He's just telling you what is. Uh, he's reporting to you. He's in the middle. And that's the job of uh, God's leaders in the church. Now, this doesn't mean that you cannot voice legitimate complaints or concerns about a church leader or a church problem. In fact, in the First Timothy 5 passage, Paul goes on in the very next verses to talk about how to deal with a sinning elder. He says in verse 19 and 20, don't receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. Maybe the complaint is something other than a sin issue. Well, the way to deal with that is, first of all, pray and check your attitude. And then, rather than grumbling to others, go directly to the leader and share your concerns. And if he doesn't listen or the matter is important enough, you may need to go back with two or three others, and try again. But the point is, don't go in anger, just event, and don't question the leader's motives as if he's out to get you or he's trying to destroy you. Uh, unless he is an unusual leader, he is really seeking God's best for you. And um, your aim in all of it, of course, as in everything, should be to glorify God, to help that leader, and to help his church. But be careful because as Moses says in verse 2, by quarreling with Moses, um, these people were really testing the Lord. A third lesson here then is that God's leaders should take every problem from within to the Lord and rely on his sufficiency to deal with it. And so Moses instantly realizes he is completely inadequate to get enough water to quench the thirst of two million people out in a barren uh, wilderness or desert. And so he cries out to the Lord in verse 4. Now, even if our problem is not that big, and to be honest, usually if it's a major problem, that's my instinct, Lord, help. The problem is if it's minor, I think I can handle this, and I proceed to try to deal with it myself. But even in those minor things, we should realize, I cannot deal with this, Lord, without you. I, I love 2 Corinthians 3, 5, where Paul, Paul being one of the greatest leaders of all time, says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything, 
as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. And uh, I love this quote by F.B. Meyer, a godly pastor from the 19th century. He said, and when we have reached the end of self, we have got to the beginning of God. Isn't that great? When we reach the end of self, we're at the beginning of God. So Moses, at the Lord's direction, takes his staff with him. That didn't mean uh, fellow leaders. That was his literal staff that he had. It was the staff that was the symbol of God's power. And it's the staff that he struck the Nile and turned it to blood. He struck the Red Sea or lifted it up over the Red Sea and divided it. He's going to use it again in verse 9 to hold up over Amalek in the battle so that Israel can prevail in the battle. And it showed both the elders and the people, uh, this isn't Moses who is going to provide for you. This is the Lord. And so the staff was the, the symbol of God's authority. And uh, Moses was just a man whom God used. God, in this case, instructs Moses not to go it alone. In verse 5, he says, take with you some of the elders of Israel. Uh, We are not told whether they were joining Moses and trusting God or whether they were part of the grumbling contingent of the congregation. But twice, verse 5 and again in verse 6, it mentions that the elders uh, were with Moses when he did this. And I believe that God's purpose may have been to teach the people, or teach the elders, to trust in God's sufficiency, uh, to teach the people that Moses was not acting by himself, and then probably just practically to protect Moses, because he's afraid the people are going to stone him. Applying this to the local church, the New Testament is very clear that Uh, It is to be governed by a plurality of elders. The church is not a one-man show. It's not my church. It's not any of our church. It's the Lord's church. And it's governed by a plurality of elders under the headship of Christ. And so whenever there's a problem, just as Moses took his uh, overwhelming problem, water for all these people, to the Lord, so the elders should come together collectively, seek the Lord, come to a consensus together, and then act for the good of the church. And it should be evident in any situation that as elders, we're not acting for our own interests. We're not relying on human methods or schemes. We're, we're dependent on the Lord. It's His church. So, first of all, first lesson, beware of grumbling then against the Lord. Same thing against God's leaders. Thirdly, the leaders then should take every problem to the Lord uh, and depend on His sufficiency. And I love this fourth lesson best of all. And that is that God's gracious provision to deal with His people's problems is to give them Christ. And Christ is the water from the rock. God's provision of water from the rock shows His amazing grace toward His people. You remember back in chapter 16, we looked at it two weeks ago when I was here, uh, the people are grumbling, no food. God does not rebuke them, but he says to Moses, all right, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven on them. And he brings the manna. 
Same thing here. The people are grumbling for water, and God doesn't rebuke them. He just tells Moses, go and strike the rock, and I'll provide water. And I think God's grace enough was enough of a rebuke. Have you ever been rebuked by grace? You know, you know you messed up. And God, rather than giving you a sharp rebuke, just pours out grace. And you're standing there going, oh my goodness, how could I ever have grumbled or complained against such a gracious, gracious Lord? Now, the Lord tells Moses that he, the Lord, would stand before Moses on the rock. And we aren't told, did the whole congregation get some kind of a visible manifestation of the glory of the Lord as at other times or not. If they did, again, that was another rebuke because they're questioning, is the Lord here among us or not? But either way, whether they saw something about the Lord's glory or not, when that water gushed out of the rock, they got an answer, the Lord is here among us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, Paul makes what I would call a very startling or surprising comment, and it's behind my saying that God's solution for our needs is to drink from Christ. Paul says this, and all, he's referring back to the Israel in the wilderness, and all drank from the same spiritual drink, For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And then he says this. And the rock was Christ. If he hadn't said that, I wouldn't have made that connection. But Paul says, the rock was Christ. I think what he means, that rock that supplied the living water for Israel so they didn't die in the wilderness, was a type of Jesus Christ who provides living water for all who call upon him, for all who trust him in their thirst. And when he says the rock followed them, I, I don't think that rock had legs and you know followed them around. I think it's a manner of speaking where he's saying wherever they went in that wilderness, Christ was there with them. And perhaps it's unrecorded for us, but Moses again would bring water from that rock at the Lord's command, but any rock became a fountain of water with Christ to supply their thirst. And just as the manna was spiritual food, it came from heaven, it met their need, so the rock was spiritual in that at God's word, it brought forth this abundant water and it showed the sustenance and the refreshment and, I might add, the sufficiency that we find when we drink from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the significant thing. The rock didn't bring forth water in the wilderness until Moses struck the rock with his rod at God's command. He had to strike the rock. And I believe it's a picture of the fact that Christ provided living water for thirsty souls only when, at the command of God, he was struck down for our sin. It's what Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, prophesied of Jesus. Such an amazing chapter. I hope you're familiar with Isaiah 53. 
It says, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken. That means struck. Smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging were healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Oh, here's a wonderful but. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. There's the gospel. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Jesus You know, you get to the very end of the Bible and there is this wonderful invitation, Revelation 22, 17. It's almost the last verse in the the last chapter of the Bible. It says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And then notice, Let the one who is thirsty say, Come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. The only requirement there for you is this. Are you thirsty? Is your life lacking spiritually? You say, man, nothing satisfies. You know, I've tried the world. Got money. Had the world's pleasures. It all comes up empty. If you're thirsty... God's answer is, come. Come to Jesus. Drink from Jesus. Because he is the fountain of living water. And three times, the spirit and the bride, the bride is the church, invite you, come to Jesus. And you know, it applies for any problems you have in your life. Any problems we face in this church. What is the answer? The all-sufficiency of Jesus, the living water. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. That should be our default mode. Come to Him and drink. And He satisfies thirsty souls. So God's people and God's leaders should drink from Christ to deal with problems from within. But then, in verses 8 through 16, we learn that God's people and God's leaders should drink from Christ to deal with problems from without. It's significant that it's only after God met Israel's need for water from the rock that then they faced their first enemy from without, this desert tribe called Amalek. Up till now, God has done everything for Israel while Israel was basically passive. God struck Egypt with the ten plagues. God um, parted the Red Sea. Egypt, I mean, Israel had nothing to do with that. God led them through, led Pharaoh's army in, closed the Red Sea back on Pharaoh's army as they watched. He has graciously now provided both food and water in this barren desert for Israel. And I believe that all of that is a picture of our salvation, where God does it all. We can only receive our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, It is God's doing, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
Now, though, having received God's salvation, Israel faces this external enemy, and God directs them to take up the sword and fight. And I believe that's a picture of our sanctification, where we have to fight the enemy through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, There are many verses that show this, but one that's familiar, perhaps, is Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he adds, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is working in you through his Spirit, but then you have to work uh, the details by getting involved. So what I'm saying is, in salvation, we're passive. God does it. In sanctification, we have to be active. We have to labor and strive in the power of the Holy Spirit and the means He's provided. Uh, There are lessons here both for God's people and for His leaders. First of all, God's people and his leaders have to fight with the world, the flesh, and the devil, which all seek to destroy us. This guy Amalek, the father of this people, he was um, a grandson of Esau through a concubine of Esau's uh, son, Eliphaz. Esau is kind of the classic worldly man in Scripture came from a godly home, should have known the Lord, but he traded his birthright for a mess of uh, pottage, a bowl of pottage. And uh, he goes on, and he succeeds in the world very well, father of tribes that uh, multiplied and so on. But the problem was he was a successful man who didn't know God. He succeeded in the world. He failed miserably with God. So he's the grandfather of Amalek. Centuries after Moses, the Lord directs Israel's first king, Saul, to go and destroy Amalek because of this attack on Israel in the wilderness. And uh, Saul sort of obeys, but he compromised. He spared Agag, the king of Amalek, And he saved some of the best sheep and oxen under the guise of, well, we're going to sacrifice these to the Lord. So his partial partial obedience was really disobedience. And because of that, through Samuel, God said, Saul, I'm removing your kingship from you. He replaced him with David. Later, some Amalekites raided Ziklag, where David's family and the families of his men were living, took those families captive, and uh, David sought the Lord and by his direction was able to go after them, slaughter many of the Amalekites, and recover their families and their belongings. But the Amalekites continued to plague Israel even uh, three centuries after um, David's reign. King Hezekiah had to deal with them. And then even three centuries after that, So this would be in the 400s B.C. Moses was about a thousand years before that. So for a thousand years, 
Amalek is plaguing Israel because there was a man named Haman. And Haman was an, a descendant of the Amalekite king Agag. And Haman concocted an evil plot to destroy and eradicate all the Jews in Persia. And Queen Esther, as you know, won the day on that. But the point is, these people were perpetual enemies of uh, Israel. Now, several devotional writers say that Amalek is a picture of the flesh uh, that believers have to constantly battle, and that may be the case, but um, I'm going to argue that since the flesh is an enemy within, um, that Amalek is broader than just the flesh. I, I would grant maybe that's part of it. But we have this threefold enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Two of them are external, one is internal. And we have to engage in perpetual warfare with these enemies of our soul. And the Bible is clear, if you compromise, these enemies are out to destroy you. And eventually, they will. But the point is here, first Israel had to drink from the rock, which is Christ. And then they had to take up their sword and actively fight with this enemy. <clears throat> and I think the lesson for us is the Christian life is not an easy stroll in the park. When you become a Christian, you now are in battle against these powerful forces that will destroy us. So how do we fight the battle? Well, that's the final lesson here is that God's leaders and God's people fight in our text here, just with three ways. By prayer, by using means in the battle, and then by remembering God's perpetual opposition to the enemy. First, by prayer. Now, let me point out, there are commentators who object to the interpretation that Moses holding up his staff in the battle was... Uh, meant that Moses was praying, since the text never says Moses was praying. And that's true, it doesn't say that. But remember, Moses' staff represented God's authority and God's strength. And when he held that staff up, he was appealing to heaven, to the Lord, through his authority, through his strength, for the battle. And when he held it up, Israel prevailed. When he let it down, Amalek prevailed. And so I think it's legitimate to view it as a picture of prevailing prayer. Now, <clears throat> that interpretation may be supported by a difficult phrase to interpret in verse 16. Uh, if you have a New American Standard Bible, or I think it's in the uh, King James or New King James, it says, the Lord has sworn. The Lord has sworn. The literal translation, and I think the ESV has this, is a hand upon the throne of the Lord. Um, the question in interpreting that phrase, that literal phrase, a hand upon the throne of the Lord is, whose hand are we talking about? If it's the Lord's hand, then it's a picture of the Lord raising his hand as an oath to say, I swear uh, opposition to this enemy Amalek forever. That's one interpretation. On the other hand, it could be Amalek's hand, in which case the uh, little preposition would mean a hand against 
the throne of the Lord, and that would fit with the context. Or I think maybe the most likely interpretation is it's Moses' hand, and the picture is Moses lifting up his hand to the throne of the Lord in prayer. And that fits with Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul talks about putting on the armor of God so that you can fight and stand in the evil day. And then right after that portion on God's uh, armor that we're to put on, Paul adds this in Ephesians 6.18, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition, for all the saints. And so, clearly, we prevail against the world, against the flesh, against the devil, uh, to the extent that we lay hold of God's riches in Christ. It's a picture, again, of drinking from Christ. God has given us water, living water for our souls in Christ. When we're in need, drink. Pray. The second way that we fight, God's leaders and God's people, is by using means in the battle. And so Moses prayed, but in this case, that wasn't enough. Joshua had to recruit soldiers, and they had to get their swords and go into physical battle against um, this enemy. This is the first mention, by the way, of Joshua in the Bible. He will go on, as you know, to become the successor to Moses to lead the Israelites into uh, the promised land. But in the same way, I think we need to pray, but we also often, most often, need to use the means that God has given us for spiritual victory. And to go back to that Ephesians 6 passage, it says we are to gird our loins with truth. We are to put on the breastplate of righteousness We are to shod our feet with the gospel of peace. Um, We are to take up the shield of faith. We're to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And there are other means as well the Bible gives us, such as worship, fellowshipping with the, the people of God, and all of those sorts of things. But the point is, certainly we should pray, and sometimes prayer alone is enough. God works. That's wonderful when that happens. But the usual thing is you pray and then you use the means that God has given you. Uh, If you need work, by all means pray. But then put together a resume and go out and beat the streets and get some job interviews. Or, you know, if you have a health need, by all means pray, but see a competent doctor and get the help you need. That sort of thing. Uh, So... We need both. And then the final lesson here is that God's leaders and God's people fight by remembering God's perpetual opposition to the enemy. In verses 14 through 16, God directs Moses to write in a book as a memorial and recite to Joshua that he would utterly block out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And so Moses builds an altar. He names it, The Lord is My Banner, And according to verse 16, it was to remind Israel that the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. 
A banner, as you know, is a military insignia that's raised up on a pole during the battle. The soldiers can look at it as the spot where their general is, and as long as that standard is on the pole, they know that they are still to engage in the battle. It's not lost. And the point here is the Lord himself is Israel's banner. We have a banner, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross. And as you know, he was lifted up to die for our sins. He was raised up in victory over the enemy of our souls. And so when we fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, we can look to Christ crucified and risen and know that we have victory in him. And that's one reason we celebrate the Lord's Supper is to remember, to remember the victory that Christ won there at the cross over our enemies. Someone has said, the only person with all his problems behind him is probably a school bus driver. <laughs> you know, if the church has people, the church will have problems. You see it all through the New Testament. But whatever the problems, whether they are from within or from without, the good news is this. We have Christ. And Christ is our all-sufficient living water. And whatever the problem is, we can drink from Christ. And he promised the sinful woman at the well, you remember, in John 4.14, he said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. What an amazing promise. He'll never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. As we were hiking in the canyon last week, we heard repeatedly from rangers, stay hydrated. Well, this is a message that says stay hydrated with the living water. The Lord Jesus Christ is that water to quench whatever need we have, a problem within, a problem without. So drink from Jesus, the living water. Let's pray. If you've never come to Christ in repentance from your sins and called out to him to have mercy on your soul, you are thirsty. You may not recognize it, but you are very, very thirsty and in danger of dropping dead from a lack of living water. The good news is, Christ will flow into your life if you call upon Him. The Bible promises whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you can do that in your heart right now. If you're a believer and your soul is dry, well, Jesus is the living water. Come to Him. Come to Him. Confess your thirst and say, Lord God, I need water for my soul. And Jesus will provide. Father, thank you for Jesus, for his all-sufficiency for us. Help us, Lord, in our problems not to grumble, but to learn more, to lay hold of Christ. I pray in his name. Amen.